not far from that. Right. Okay. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling roundup of our film watches over the last month, October. Bookie Halloween times, I'm sure. Uh, we'll be getting into more Halloween stuff. And joining me for this podcast, Scott Armour. Trick or treat, motherfucker. Gordon Webster. Good evening, Mr. Barry. What was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Have you become an airline pilot? <laughs> did, did anyone else hear that? <laughs> it's my new intro. We'll be landing at Bethlehem Heathrow. That's what you're kind of expecting, wasn't it? Like... <laughs> okay. New intro, folks. That's thrown me off there. Fran Murphy is here. Yo, yo, yo. And Steve McCall. I feel very inadequate having a relatively normal boy get through, but a very good evening to you all. But don't feel bad. Mine was the same as it always is as well. Yeah, yeah. Same old, same old. Yep. Good to have you guys here for this. Obviously, uh, you can, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I was telling you right before recording, I'm a little hungover. Um, when I say a little, I am very hungover. Uh, so this is going to be fun, and I was telling you all about I actually uh, grabbed my duvet and pillow and slept on my bathroom floor for a while. I'll leave it at that. So yeah, this is a productive day I've had, and I'm looking forward, though, it's going to brighten up, talking about films with you guys. Our usual film roundup, what's been happening in films, uh, or mostly streaming services, let's face it, and the odd cinema film, uh, television series, and the look back session, we'll be covering the older stuff from pre-2022. We'll start, of course, with our new... Oh. We've just changed scene. No, well, you guys can't see this, the the listener, but uh, we're now <laughs> sitting. We're touching down. Yeah, land. Yep. This is this, this is, is Gordon airplane. Yep. It's uh yeah. I'll I'll leave. I'll move on from that because there's no point in even trying to describe <laughs> what we're seeing. Uh, yeah. So we are going to start with what's been happening. Uh, what's our most recent viewings in the last month in terms of new films released, Scott. We'll start with you, seeing as well, this is the kind of the, the October Halloween edition of the podcast. We'll start with a horror film. Halloween Ends is the film you've watched, so kick us off with this one. How was it for you? Um, I think it's desperately trying not to spoil it, and it's really difficult. It's really difficult not to, to actually get into the, the sort of meat and bones of Halloween Ends without giving anything away. Um, I think what I would say is it's more, as a Halloween pun, it's probably more trick than it is treat. And I think the, I think David Gordon Green, I think he tried to do something different here in the last film. You know, it's it's obviously the David Gordon Green uh, trilogy. Yeah. So, so he kicked the, things off. Since was it twenty eighteen? Was the the sort of. 20- yeah, convoluted. It's a sequel. The second one, which is the one I've watched, I'll talk about in the look back yeah. section. It's a sequel to the first Halloween, but it, it's retconned the entire series, so only that one exists. Uh, the yeah. rest don't. Very similar to. I mean, to be honest with you, similar what they done with H two O. H two O was done something similar where it retconned from I think two onwards. Um, so we've seen that done before. I, I guess with Halloween ends again. It. it it just—it's a very, very different film from Halloween Kills, 
and both of those films are very, very different films from the Halloween remake in 2018. And it's it's disappointing in a way because if you watch them as a trilogy, they don't feel like a trilogy. Like, consistency-wise, even through the characters, um, so Jamie Lee or Loris Rhodes, um granddaughter, Alison, I think she's played by Andy Matichek, I think you say her name. So her, <clears throat> so even just as an example, her character in Halloween Ends is completely different to the one in Halloween, and there's no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. So again, it's just a from a consistency perspective, it doesn't feel within the same set of films or world. Is it the um, same writer? Who's the is David Gordon Green just the director? Is he so, writing these? So, as well? You know, so Danny McBride um, get brought on to write. I'm sure he wrote the first two. He was involved in this one, and then they brought another chap on. But the majority of it has been, like, John Carpenter's been, like, a consultant. So there was a lot of this film where they they sort of, you know, spoke spoke with John Carpenter, who obviously directed the very first Halloween. And he kind of said, yay or nay, in terms of the direction or the or the approach or where they would go. Um, I just think that they tried. A lot, a lot of people are coming out, even Jamie Lee Curtis has even come out and said, this, this will anger fans. I don't know what that means. It's like, you know, your, your top billing star is coming out saying it's going to it's going to be divisive very similar to like kind of last jedi vibes star wars so they have tried something new which i didn't really mind i wasn't angry it just didn't make sense and i think they just i think they should have set it up in the prior films so it had more payoff does that make sense i think in the last film of the trilogy they just tried too much to do too much but also wrap up wrap up the trilogy and it's it, it just starts to get a wee bit messy. Yeah, but we're getting into weird territory in making of sequels. And I'm trying I'm trying to think of other examples, but you're explaining Scott about or Steve, um, how it retcons one of the films, it ignores some of the sequels and it jumps back to what Halloween one or two. And I'm noticing that more with more modern films. I think if you think of maybe some of the Terminator sequels, for example. It's just it's strange. It's like so. We it's like selective memory. We want like some of the previous events from some of these films to be remembered, and some of them just pretend they didn't happen. It can get quite confusing. And some you're right. Terminator, um, obviously Terminator Three, I think a lot, and then obviously Genesis. Genesis was, you know, the meant to be the one that. Well, they never even retconned that they basically went back and shot similar scenes to the first Terminator. Um, but Terminator, you're right, Terminator Dark Fate just goes, yeah, do you know what? See what happened in these films? Just just pretend they never happened. And that's, that's essentially what the Halloween reboot, if you want to call it that, was in 2018. It was just basically all the nonsense, and don't get me wrong, there was some nonsense that happened in between the first Halloween and this one. Um, they're basically just saying no. Just don't even bother with that. I guess it's like when, and and of course I'll say like the Bond franchise, a prime example. It's almost like when you, there's been many franchises where it, it's been very successful under a certain actor, and then they change actor and it doesn't work, so they go back to one of the more original people. I guess they maybe did they do that to an extent with the Jurassic Park franchise, bring back um, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum. I know they were in like starring roles, but. I've, I've definitely noticed that with a, a few things. The Sean Connery Bond thing was the first thing that came into my head, but there, there, there's definitely a few franchises that have done that. It's like it's almost like when a band releases a new album that, where they've experimented with a different style and it doesn't go down well. So it's like, 
oh, that, they didn't like that, so we need to just go back to our original style. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't think Jurassic Park was so much a retcon. That was that was them trying to take the franchise forward, um, you know, without retconning it. Hence why the the old cast get brought back. I think when I think in terms of Halloween, obviously because Michael Myers is the, you know, almost supernatural. I think you can get away with it more in the Halloween franchise. I think new idea, you know, Rob Zombie obviously rebooted it in two thousand and seven. You know, it's happened before. I don't really mind it, um, but there is other franchises where, like for example, the Terminator franchise, which is is just a mess. Like it's you know, there's no direction. And I think tying it back into Halloween ends, I think that's probably the main issue that I've got because David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, when they first set off with this sort of project for Halloween. They 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 wanted to film kills and ends back to back. So it was to be like almost straight from it, direct sequel. Um for whatever reason they couldn't do it. I think COVID put stop to that as well. Um and it I guess really, the sorry on you go. Oh sorry Scott, I was just gonna say in case it it makes my point a bit clear, um like the likes of the Bourne franchise, I suppose, because they had a, a film with Jeremy Renner after three with Matt Damon, I think then they went back to Matt Damon, uh, you know, like that sort of thing. Was the was the was the Matt uh, was the Jeremy Renner not still continuing it with the the Jeremy Renner wasn't like doing it where he was Jason Bourne or was he? He was a totally different character. Yeah, I couldn't really comment on that because I've not seen it, but I just like I mean as a star role. But there's other examples. Yeah, I just it, I just when I even just when I read about Halloween ends and and Empire, I think it was it just. It's like we're going back to our roots sort of thing. It reminded me of that. Do you know what? Some franchises need it. And I think the I think the twenty eighteen Halloween is by by far up there with you know, I don't think it's as good as it's probably the closest any Halloween film has came to, to emulating the very first film. Like it's a very, very good piece of work. Um however, as I say, as a as a trilogy I just don't think the Halloween ends for me tried to do something bold, which I appreciate. Um, the execution of it just isn't great. The character, even Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, completely different direction and and performance than it was in Halloween. You know, the, the reboot Halloween in 2018, even in Halloween Kills to, to now, it actually feels as if it's a totally different writer and director. To be honest, um, which is which is disappointing. So, like, is there no justification for her change? I mean, I've not seen that. Again, it's, again I, I, it's, from, I'll be talking about again. the Halloween twenty eighteen uh, later on in this podcast. But the character that she plays in that one, Laurie, Laurie Strode, uh, she's obviously more older, grizzled. It's kind of like a Sarah Con, Sarah Connor, like yeah. kind of, yeah. I, and I loved that that aspect to her. She's yeah. actually become. She's kind of uh, got more agency in in the story. She's the one that's really taken on mm-hmm. Michael Myers. It's a kind of and a combative kind of thing that she's not a victim anymore. She's ready for him. So what's the what are we talking about here with the change in her? Like, what does she? Is it like is it a complete personality change from that? Oh, a hundred percent. Like you, that. That is the Laurie Strode that you see in Halloween is not the same one that you see here. She is, and is there a no justification in the way that, like, obviously with Sarah Connor again in the Terminator films, the second, like the second film Terminator Two, like it makes complete sense 
the change up she's a different character essentially but it's it makes complete contextual sense in that story as to why based on what happened to her in the first film and again it's difficult it's difficult to sort of to sort of quantify it without going into too many spoilers it's the only thing i would say is is time has passed and she seems well i don't even think she is she she's it's perceived that she's better and she's past it but you know she's not but she's not the kick-ass Laurie Strode that you see in the first one. And I, I guess we do get some kind of understanding. Um, but four years on after the events of Halloween Kills, and and obviously Halloween Kills is directly straight, I think it's like hours after the first Halloween film. So even four years and you've got a totally different Laurie Strode, it just didn't add up to me. Mm-hmm. Um and again, it's difficult without actually yeah. sort of getting into the yeah. uh, What would you give this? We'll come to the rating for that. Um, I think t- I think a two would be really harsh. I'd probably say a very weak three. Okay. Yep. Sounds like it. Uh, Halloween ends as a name suggests this is the final, final, final Halloween film. But with these franchises, it's never really. It's a bit. Is it not a bit? risky calling it that but then is that a spoiler to Uh, to even go into that (laughs) it's a spoiler to even go into that all i would say is michael myers gets his head chopped off in halloween h2 and he somehow manages to come back and yeah resurrection so we'll go into that a wee bit later on yeah we'll be we'll be talking about halloween later on probably in about under an hour something like that um so yeah more halloween talk to come we'll be talking about more or less the entire franchise in some respect but we will move on as we've got another film that I have watched, as well as Gordon, that was released on to Netflix, a Netflix original, uh, I think. And this is Blonde. This is the Marla Monroe biopic. And it's, uh, I mean, I've not spoken to you, Gordon, to get your feelings on it. I kind of told you about what I thought, and essentially I'll relay that now. I think this is a very ambitious film. It's quite provocative, and it's... Get th- it's, I think the central performance is amazing. Anna de Armas, she yep. is incredible in this film. The writing, I don't feel is quite there. It's it's based on the book. Is it Joyce? Is it Carol Joyce? I can't remember her name now. I should really have that. But it's a take on the character that I think it has actually garnered some some criticisms the film is seen as actually a little sexist and even though they were going for actually a super quite feminist approach i think they've went so far that it's actually become quite a sexist take where she is essentially a victim of through every part of her life and um men essentially are all the ones that are you know making that happen and i think there's definitely going to be truth to that i think that's from le- re- reading a lot of about her but to make it the entire film it is actually it's like nearly three hours long it's about two hours and 45 yeah. minutes and it's quite a misery <laughs> like it is actually quite hard-hitting misery porn essentially like it is kind of depressing when you feel that there could there could have been a way to maybe have i think she could have had a bit more agency when you look into her, there's a lot of things about her that i don't feel they covered that i think would have been actually important to cover like she, I think, set up her own production company or and things like that. She's a bit of a more of an entrepreneur. That wasn't really shown in the film. Anyways, Gordon, I'll get your take. What was your take on this film? Well, you did say before. I don't think you'll like it. I, yeah, you weren't too far off. I, I do I agree with a lot of what you've said, Steve, about 
the misery that Marilyn been used by men exploited so forth. That's it's a to the point I think it's a bit of a one trick pony this film. Yeah. And it, it dithers so much. Um I kept waiting, like where's the iconic line? Um where's this sense of foreboding, this build up to something big and it just it never really came. Yeah. That's a, that's I mean a good to, point. To, the the pluses were like I mean like you said Anna de Armas was very good, and you know from the limited material I've seen of Marilyn Monroe in her films and so forth it seemed a pretty good likeness you got to get at that um you know get the vo- voice wise and everything as well I mean so, some great likenesses of other people I think the Arthur Miller um one who was her husband at some point was pretty good the JFK I can't I don't know the actor's name but what a likeness that was. Mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy, um, and you know some of the camera work, you know, was was really impressive. Yeah, just yeah. like this sort of three hundred and sixty degree spin, the 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 more these sort of dynamic zooms and things like that. Um, I I would say that some of the more interesting stuff was the likes of her Marilyn's relation with her mother, and there was actually incredible tension. That do you remember the scene when she goes to see her mother in the hospital? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't believe she's seen her for. A long time, yeah, yeah. I found that very intense. That was one of the better scenes in the film. Um, yes. It was. I found it a bit of a drag, to be honest, Steve. I, I think it got to about forty minutes in, and so she gets into this weird relationship with two twins, two twin guys. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so like grotesque, so weird. And then there were the one or both the guys like staring up to the sky, trying to sound all poetic about it. And I just thought, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. I don't. I, there, there's just nothing there for me. This this is boring the hell out of me. I, that's how I thought at that particular point. And I think it did improve a bit. Um, but I'm like, I'm looking, I'm waiting for that iconic line for that. There's no real kind of highs and everything. That, I just think Marilyn Monroe said there was clearly a, a real acting talent there, and that's you know part of the reason she was famous. I mean, she was an actor, for goodness sake, but we didn't really get a sense of that in the film. Yeah, that is actually one of the things I feel the, like, the there's moments where she's on set and she's being difficult, which is what something in her later career, she was sort of becoming a bit more known for that and maybe having arguments with people on set and walking off and being late and all these kind of things. And the film, with all the misery of things going on, it, it kind of at least gives you some context as to maybe potentially what was going on in her head to get to that. But the actual film side of it, I feel like her career was just it was just a backdrop to all the misery on her life. And actually I would I was kind of interested as someone who appreciates, you know, film and film history, I would have wanted a bit more uh, on on her actual thoughts on her performances and and what she was putting into these films and things like that, there there's something missing there. And yeah. it's, it obviously it is this is it's Joyce Carol Oates was the the writer. She was the well she wrote the book that the the film is based on, and Andrew Dominic is the director, and he wrote the screenplay. But he they focused on this kind of um, I mean I don't know how much of what was going on in her if this is fictional or more fictional than than the, than the way they've they've done the book but the the focus of the film is all about her search for her dad mm-hmm. really and mm-hmm. and that calling all calling all our sexual partners daddy uh-huh. i know oh. <laughs> like i thought did i hear her right did she say danny it turned out it was uh, daddy uh, it was daddy everyone was daddy there was that she was of... dating a lot of dannies <laughs> but that, that's the thing like you know i feel like from what i'm hearing i've not watched this yet but it sounds in a way like it's kind of 
Oscar. it's quite a safe thing in safe? some ways. No, like, no, this film is not. I mean, safe. Is, it, is it not safe? Because no. there's things about well, Marilyn Monroe, like you know, you know, the kind of questions around her death and the drugs that she was on. I mean, is that all touched upon there? It's weird. It's weird. I, I don't know if you agree with me, Steve, but like her death, it was the just like went over it so quickly, and that was the end of the film. There was no. They did not dwell on her death at all. And her, her death is a pretty well-talked-about subject, all kinds of conspiracy theories and stuff. Mm-hmm. Was it an overdose? Well, she was on a million different prescription drugs. Weirdly, and... it didn't really cover that too you much. You know, and, and the thing is as well, like, I mean, I do want to watch it. I mean, I guess what I was hoping to hear from you guys talking about it is that, you know, oh, this was clearly marked as something that affected her and kind of pushed her into the reliance on these drugs and you know some of the some of the things that happened to her affected her and made her reliant on this or whatever do you know what i mean like, i was kind of hoping that there might be a through line of that kind of story that would lead up to her eventual death and well, maybe ha- you know they, they would at least pick an angle there would be some sort of well they do the, the, the angle is the search for her dad and the misery that comes with just not having that her dad in her life and she only has a picture that she was given by her mum, essentially, as this guiding thing. And, and that's the thing that supposedly caused her death. Well, this is the film's interpretation of it. We don't... I think there is elements of this film that have been heavily fictionalised to fit the narrative. Um, because there's yeah. things like an abortion sequence. There's She did, I think, in real life have potentially multiple miscarriages, but a lot of it isn't confirmed, especially the, there's an abortion sequence, which is very like quite triggering um and the film has been labeled as by another you know some people for pro-life that kind of stuff you know and it's a kind of it's an indictment of you know the abortions and things like that but the the stuff with her dad you know i won't there's 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 a reveal at near the end of the film and i won't say what it is because that's that's actually you know that's a kind of spoiler thing but I don't know if how true that is. I I can't. I'm not an expert on this subject. I haven't read the book, and I also don't know all that much about her, her life. But I get the sense that it's maybe not uh, something that actually happened. But that is seems to be the trigger for then her her eventual death. Mm. And so, there just wasn't much story at all, though. That I found. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, you know, I don't know if any of, any of the rest of you noticed this, but it does seem celebrity or not that anyone who gets too kind of embroiled in the murky annals of power ends up going through this process of going crazy and or dying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, was I, I've always felt with Marilyn Monroe that there was, you know, there's the sort of obviously the stuff that you don't know about everyone's life, but there's certainly stuff going on there that. You know, she she kind of followed a, a a particular path, didn't she? Um, was it the pressure that got to her? Was it that she risked the establishment in some way? You know, you know, was it what did she get in the wrong? There was whole talk, there was talk about her relationship, you know, with the mob and the mafia, and that she knew people in that world as well. So that's um, as as did other people. That, you know, there's other people that were famous that like you know you had all a lot of your Vegas performers. They were the same. You know, those. And I'm just and I take it. The mob side of things, then, was that kind of not really even alluded to at all? Well, I, it was, I don't know, Steve, was it maybe a case of like they'd poured enough dirt over Marilyn Monroe's life that they couldn't really do anymore because it's like they did her such a disservice with pretty much the whole film. And, um, like, I wonder about all the like any surviving members or people that were close to her, like, what would they be thinking of? But by, the way, on screen? by the way, guys, I just have to ask 
I'm looking at Steve McCall's picture here and he's so still, but I'm not sure he's still there. <laughs> oh, he's oh. gone. He's disappeared. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was getting good, concerned. I was, like, I was like, I was like, my God, it looks like he's been frozen in carbon. I am still, don't worry. I am still here. What? It's like there's not just conspiracy theories about Marilyn Monroe's disappearance, but Steve as well at the present moment. Your sound you know quality what? sounds worse. I chilled out. Your sound quality is quite poor. Is that a different headset or something? <laughs> He's an internet, it might be. It's my mob connection. Oh, wow. That's kind of bad. Yeah. Oh, mind oh, that's, that's odd. I've not. Sounds a bit better now. It was just a, bit, oh, really? a minute ago. Shit. Um, <laughs> no, but... <laughs> I bet it's this internet because it's shit. Um, okay, I'll keep an eye on it. Tell me. There seems to be a delay. It does go shit, and I'll just come back back in again because we've been having problems with our internet. It's probably that. You sound a bit hoarse as well, but that's probably the internet. Nice. A delay on mine. So I said that about tw- 12, 15 seconds ago, so I think there's like a delay. All right, hang on. Has, has... <laughs> you may want to just come out and come back in, I think, Steve. Oh, right. I tell you what, I'm going to come out of this and go back in again. Yep, cool. What's amazing about that is that Steve said what you were thinking 15 seconds before you said hang it. On. <laughs> Which uh, which is incredible, really. I mean, um, but yeah, that was quite funny. That was strange. Um, so, so see with the so see with this film, guys. I'm I'm getting I'm struggling to kind of understand like what the true what the true point of it being. It, uh, it's, uh, it, it kind of obviously when you look at the posters and Anna de Armas, to me it just screams like Oscar bait. Like it looks as if they're trying to get a film out there to 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 do something at, at award season. Um, but obviously what you guys are saying, it's like it, even the, you know, probably the, the, the bit that's shrouded in mystery is around the death. So it's like, not that you kind of want to hear about that or whatever, but it kind of just seems as if it's like, well, what is there an, was there an interesting story here to be told? Or Yeah, of course. Was it, was, it just, was it just because it was Marilyn Monroe? There was, I think there's so much they could have done with this film. It, just, it dithers here, it dithers there. It dithers everywhere, and there's no. It doesn't feel like said that there's any real story. I was constantly in my mind comparing it to other more recent biopics I've seen, which mostly music based. Elvis, The Rocket Man, Bohemian Rhapsody, and they all had like they had so many highs and lows, and that's why they were so great. There was no highs in this film, really. It was just like it's low after low. Marilyn was exploited. Marilyn was used. Marilyn was exploited. Just a constant tragedy i mean yeah, yeah just... there wasn't any mirth in the film at all there is zero humor in this film i, I think i don't remember but, anymore it was too long as well <laughs> yeah. like you i think you mentioned that steve was... but the, yeah. but the, i was going to say um, and obviously i've not seen this film but i don't know if any of you guys have seen control it's the ian curtis biopic the joy division lead singer no now, now i'd like to a, see that yeah that's a really good film but that isn't light-hearted that is really really grim and depressing but it's a really good story um, I mean, that's the thing like it can uh, it can fit the purpose of the film i get maybe what i think because of its length this film has as mm. well as the fact that there's it's all you know low travesty and all this kind of stuff like low points in her it seems like as much as she's on these you know her career takes off like a rocket but she is still going through all sorts of misery and stuff like that like it feels 
Like they could have found a way to hit. So, so some of the points would have hit big, bigger if you if you weren't just beaten to death over two hours, nearly three hours of, of time with all these horrible kind of depressing things. I think. Yeah, because one thing you um, touched upon there, Steve, was her sort of hitting the height of fame, and you didn't really get a sense of what that was. Like, what was she famous for? It was like you saw a few editions and like tiny bits of films. But apart from that, it was like magazine covers. I mean, like the the way they recreated like magazine covers was pretty well done. But like, um, it's like, and again, touching what Scott said, like, what is the thing? What is it all about? It's like. And to quote Faith No More, what is it? I was looking for an it. What, like, what's she becoming famous for? And there was no real... For an example, if you look at... See, if you look at Steve like Elvis, there was like that moment in stage where he was quite a um, low-level blues band guy where it just suddenly one night he did this amazing thing with his hips and that was like a spark. Mm-hmm. And it's like watching The Rocket Man, there was that time like elton john just there's just a spark one night and then everyone thinks this guy's actually amazing you know so there wasn't that spark and this it was like oh this girl i mean she's really got something we've never seen there was nothing like that i, I just found it weird maybe they were maybe they were trying to do a spin on the public perception because obviously like general public perception of marilyn monroe is this beautiful kind of angel like you know woman who died tragically but obviously I, d- I don't i mean i didn't know the all the stuff that you're talking about where in terms of like it sounds as if there was like some some like mental health sort of issues maybe some daddy issues she had as well but obviously you don't know that and the kind of the, the public domain maybe they're just trying to get that out there to say you know looks can be deceiving maybe yeah i think they they've tried something this is the thing with this film I can at least give it credit for trying something like most biopics, and as much as I do prefer something like Elvis, just better style, better written, all that, but also the great central performance. You know, the one criticism I had with something like Elvis was there is a slight feeling of being there, done that, in the terms of the structure of the story. Not that maybe there is. Yeah. Like, whereas Rocket Man, that was bizarre, bonkers, it was fantastical, and that was able to tell still tell a great story within that so that was something that was really unique and elvis maybe quite wasn't but it was still a great film this film tries something it does try to be different this is not your typical biopic this is something very a bit strange it even plays around with the cinema scope like you know the points in the film it's different like uh you know that sort of older style kind of you know yeah like the aspect ratio yeah the aspect ratio and then it's even got like black and white there's a lot that but i wasn't that was odd maybe i'm just a bit slow on things which i definitely can agree to but i wasn't quite following as to why and it's certain why certain points because it was flitting between color and black and white color black and white and i was like what's the through line here what's the theme that we're trying to do here Um, 100 percent agree with that yeah yeah. I, i didn't understand why is it constantly shifting yeah and so that was the same with the cinema scope as well. It went to a more wider towards the end, but it also had moments where it was in the sort of letterbox or whatever it is. Um, and it just it felt a bit random, but there might be a reason that just I was it was over my head. So yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird film. They try something. I can give them credit for that. And the central performance is amazing. Diarmas is incredible in this film. She's nearly in every scene. You know, maybe apart from the beginning when it's Marlins as a child actor. But not a child actor. It was a child actor playing her. Um, 
But once she's introduced it and it's her, she's in every single scene essentially and she is incredible. You feel that like you could be watching her. But it is a take on her life that I don't feel maybe is quite the the full thing and, and for a, a piece of media, a piece of entertainment, <laughs> it's pretty grim at points. So yeah, very mixed. I would give this a free Gordon. It's a very uh it's similar to what Scott said on the Halloween ends in the sense that it just gets that free but there's some merit there, especially in De Armas' performance that I feel, and cinematography at points, like you say, there were some great shots in this film that I feel like it gets that free. What, what about yourself? Well, De Armas is the high point. I certainly agree with that. Uh, bang average, I would say. Uh, I think there's a, a, I would give it a two. Okay. I think, um, just ultimately, yeah, you were saying, but it does, so it does like push the envelope a bit. I mean, you, you can admire the steps it's taking to you know give us a totally different style but you need the story to back it up and it just didn't have that yeah yeah i can i can you know i can see that point i wouldn't completely disagree with that either as much as i gave it a three it, it grasped for the free it just gets it from me so yeah three and a two for blonde that is a kind of a qualified recommendation for me <laughs> <laughs> very qualified i know i would say like i did say to you you i don't think you'll like it but i think you should watch it um so as to get your opinion on it so it's that kind of film uh so there is the the main films really that's came out this month that we've caught uh a very quick nod to the sound of 007 that was added to amazon as a documentary i mean i don't know if you class this as television or film i suppose but it's a great documentary we've done lots on bond i'm not going to go into a lot of detail but it's definitely worth a watch really enjoyed it um it covers uh most of you know it's a lot of john barry and, and all these kind of things and all the singers that they, they had over the years of the bond franchise if anyone who's a bond fan should watch this documentary so highly recommend that and i also watched the sound of 007 in concert which was just added and it's about an hours long um orchestral performance with david arnold uh the orchestra i can't remember the names it's uh it'll come to me but again fantastic and lots of different singers coming in some of them the actual singers like um shirley bassey and lulu and then others younger talent coming in to sing you know like nancy sinatra's uh you only live twice and stuff stuff like that so there's some really good stuff in there i uh, really enjoyed it really fun to watch and Hans Zimmer makes an appearance and that was a really great moment towards the end. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, very, very good. Yeah, I will be re-watching it because I was, we were rather drunk, or at least I was rather drunk watching it. Uh, see, not the concert, uh, I should add, which I've not seen, but, but yeah, I uh, will be re-watching it. Uh, I would have, I hoped it would have maybe mentioned like Michael Kamen a bit more or maybe even Eric Serra just for variety but yeah it was yeah, um I very much enjoy very well produced yeah as a GoldenEye fan the uh, lack of GoldenEye I was gutted about that there was no Eric Serra just even to just talk about obviously it wouldn't have probably went and they obviously did it for a reason because I think Eric Serra's score for GoldenEye is usually derided it's the one point in the film that is commonly derided but uh, I would have loved to just have their take on it uh, but yeah Great. Any, anyone who's a Bond fan should certainly watch it. It's really, really good watch. Um, so that does it for new films. We'll do television series now. And Fran, you wanted to give a shout out to the final episodes of House of the Dragon. Uh, how is it? How's that season been for you overall? I think it's been very, very good. Uh, I, I think it ended on a. <clears throat> obviously, again, you know, it's difficult to talk about. 
the final episode of a season that other people haven't watched because you don't want a spoiler what's uh, happened but i figured i would take the opportunity to sort of look at the first season you know as as a fully formed season and it's interesting because with game of thrones you know you you saw multiple locations and multiple there was a there seemed to be a larger kind of ensemble cast in game of thrones and you got to see a lot more of the world whereas in house of the dragon it's very much centered around it's centered around less locations and less people it feels and there's a lot more talk and it feels like the first season i think it would certainly be looked back on as a season that was sort of doing the groundwork for the future seasons if that makes sense it's it's i can't imagine there'd be a lot of people that would who watch the show that would be super excited to rewatch the season again because it is very talky and there's a little bit of you know it's funny because my uncle said it had a bit of phantom menace syndrome around it where because it's in the past, you know... Uh, I was going to say, are you going to say that there's Viceroy's in it? <laughs> Trade well, Federation. Trade Federation. Uh, Viceroy. Yeah, um, uh, first season, it had a lot of people sitting around tables talking about political things and discussions in bedrooms and side rooms between characters that were sort of scheming against others. You know, there wasn't really much travel and seeing new places and things like that. There was some of it. Um, I think it was a good season all in all. As it went on, I mean, it, it certainly when it started, you know, with the music and the, the look of the, the the show, it felt very much like Game of Thrones, and it still does. But I think one of the one of the things that made Game of Thrones so captivating was the ensemble cast of really interesting characters and the the world, you know, seeing the world, a lot of the different locations. And I'm hoping that in the future seasons we'll get to see a lot more of that. What would you give this season overall rating? Um, probably give it a four, a five for a se- as for, for you know for the whole season. Uh, I don't think there was any. I don't think there was any five out of five episodes. You know, it, it was very much. You know, you had some episodes that weren't too exciting, and maybe you'd give them a two or a three, and then the, you know the highest it would get would be like a, a four and a half or something. So I'd say f- four. Okay. Across the board for it. Okay. Um, it's highly recommended, of yeah. course. Yeah. For anyone who's a Game of Thrones fan. Before we move on to the next show, Scott, you've been wa- you were watching Game of Thrones. Where did you get to? Uh, I'm still at the tail end of season two. Oh wow. I've not made I've not made any headway in it, to be honest. Are you Are you struggling? Is it a show that you don't? Um, I think I'm. I I, th- I think that I can't remember what episode it was. The last time I watched it, but I, I had no, you know how you, you know how something grabs you, and you 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 stay up to like stupid o'clock in the morning to watch the next episode. For example, the Jeffrey Dahmer uh, series on Netflix. Um, as much as I did not want to watch the next episode of that, yeah, I wanted to watch the next episode. Um, Game of Thrones, I'm struggling with to be honest. I really am. Okay. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's because I just missed the train on it. I know a lot of stuff that happens. I don't know. I don't necessarily know when it happens, but I know what happens to certain characters or the main characters, if that makes sense. Um, but I'm, I'll, I'll try because I really do want to watch the, the the House of Dragons. I kind of want to get up to speed with that um, and watch some of the newer stuff because it does look it does look uh, quite good. It's interesting that Game of Thrones the... hasn't gripped in that way. That's the show that that was that show for me. That kind of like yeah, next episode. Well, the... mm. I mean, that's the thing. You can watch House of the Dragon. Without spoiling in Game of Thrones because it's set before it. Oh, is it a prequel? Ah, yeah. right, okay. 
yeah, so it may be an idea just before, to, it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it may be an idea just to watch that. Mm. No, that's a good show actually. Yeah. Maybe as one of these. Extent, um, Game of Thrones. There was a, a hype element to it. Everyone wanted to watch the next episode because everyone around them was watching the next episode, and you kind of there was almost a sort of need to keep up. As much as the uh, the action of what was going on in the show was great, mm. I wonder if perhaps watching it now means you're kind of there's an element missing now, and it's that hype element. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, but possibly. Is, yeah, I think the I mean, first the first season to me was really good, like really really good. I think the second season, I I just struggled the first couple. I, can't, I honestly can't even remember where I am. I mean, Charles Dance must be in it by now, surely, yeah? Oh, no, he, well, he was in the... Um, in the first season as well? Second he was in the first season, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing, right, is that... When was it Game of Thrones came out? Was it 2000 and... The first episode, when would it have been? 2010? 2011? Uh, something I think like it was before that, was it not? Or was it 2009? I, I was thinking right, around about that time. Because I think that element that McCall is mentioning there, the idea of people all being excited for a show, kind of dwindled. I mean, obviously Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad held on to that because those shows came out at a time where, you know, they were sort of the vanguard of a, a new kind of era of TV. And But they, they were out at a time where they're maybe what... Like, there's almost like a... There's so much choice in so many shows nowadays that it's difficult... Like, you, you don't often get everybody hooked on one big show the same way, or one or two big shows. So, yeah, certainly, you know... I mean, I remember, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, when a big show would be out, you would very much... You'd get that... that You'd know for a fact that most people were watching the same thing. Whereas nowadays... You know, if you look at it right now, you've got Andor, you've got She-Hulk, you've got uh, House of the Dragon, you've got um, Tales of the Jedi, you've got... Yeah, there's... Do you know what I mean? Like, even in one franchise, there's like five or six different shows on at the same time. Um, You know, people... The films are being released a lot of the time quite quickly to stream, rather than... You know, people aren't really going to the cinema the same. Uh, Music's the same, like... I mean, I don't know, if Steve, if you've heard the new Arctic Monkeys album. I Did you know this... that that was out? Yeah, I've seen a billboard for it. Is it called Cars? Uh-huh. So, Weird. you know, like, look back to when AM came out, Arctic Monkeys. Like, I remember even getting in a taxi in, when I was living down in England at that time. And I said, the taxi driver was like, oh, what are you listening to at the moment? I was like, AM. He was like, yeah, me too. Everybody, you would talk to lots of people. Whereas nowadays, things have certainly changed in that regard. And I think that's part of the enjoyment of watching shows isn't it is being able to get together with a few people that you know are really into or knowing that if you go into work the next day then or whatever you know you'll be talking to some folk about it you're getting back to that great podcast we had before talking about it weren't things so much better in the old days when um, (laughs) yeah we used to buy cds and cassettes and but it's kind of yeah you are um making good points but kind of the same thing really yeah it's um it does certainly help when there's that aura around it um knowing knowing that it's quite a big thing at that time mm-hmm. um definitely right we'll move on then fran to star trek lower decks you've watched the final the, the final episode of the season it's just been is that season three of that yeah. what's your thoughts very we've covered this one quite a fair bit so very brief on this one yeah you know it's interesting again talking about it as a season 
You know, the the final episode of the season, Lower Decks has had this tradition of having quite a big, exciting final episode. Usually that has callbacks to other Star Trek shows and whatever. This one wasn't, didn't have so much of that. It felt a little, it felt a bit, a bit weak, to be honest, the, the finale. It was a little bit underwhelming. And the season itself, there was a couple of points where it seemed to kind of <clears throat> mature and that, like if I've gone back in the past to compare it to Red Dwarf, as you'll remember, Steve, because we we obviously watched Red Dwarf quite a lot together. This idea of misfits together on a ship, and then sometimes you get these quite serious moments there, but they weren't very often. Um, there's been little bits of that, but it kind of felt that this season there was points watching it where I was like, mm, I've kind of seen this before, you know, I've seen you know that this doesn't it's, it's not so fresh, um, or it didn't have quite the same impact. I don't know, or uh, maybe. Uh, some some elements of the show was wasn't quite as exciting as it was in the first couple of seasons. So I'm hoping that the next season, I'm, I don't know, it's unusual for a show to have an an incredible first season, an incredible second season, and then a slightly weak third season because the third season is usually where a show p- picks up ahead of steam. So I'm hoping that it's a slight, you know, slight misstep. I mean, they had an episode actually that was in this season that was almost beat for beat exactly the same as one of the episodes in the, the first season. Oh. Weird. That it was. Way, it was almost. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it was almost like they're trying to do something like now the Treehouse of Horror episodes, where you'd have like the Halloween theme mm. or whatever. It was kind of like that, but it just felt a bit samey. It didn't feel like a. I don't know. Okay, so what would you give this season a rating of? I reckon it would be a. I'd probably give this season a three out of five. I think. Yeah. Okay. All right, three for three stars for Star Trek Lower Decks. Steve, we come to you. Man versus B. Yes, this is a Netflix special which I ended up watching on holiday just because I was incredibly intrigued by it. Uh, so the the cast is basically Rowan Atkinson and a CGIB, and it's broken down. It's it's effectively a ninety minute film, but for reasons I'm still not entirely sure, it's been broken down into nine twelve minute episodes, which I suppose means if you're busy or you you're want to kind of you've got a few minutes and you kind of want to dip in and out of something, you can watch it episode by episode and it's over very, very quickly, or you can just watch the whole lot in one go and it only takes you an hour and a half. So it's Rowan Atkinson doing effectively what he does best. He's starring as a generally useless man who he gets a job as a professional house sitter and goes to live at the mansion of this multimillionaire art collector and his wife. They go off on holiday, he's left to look after the house, look after the dog. That's it. Simple. And it's obviously not. (laughs) So exactly what you imagine happens, happens. He's in the house, a bee gets in, he wants rid of it, and he effectively spends the nine episodes getting more and more and more obsessive about getting rid of this bee to the extent that it causes absolute carnage. It's... It's ridiculous, but it's it's quite a good fun watch. It's basically it's an extrapolated Mr. Bean sketch. Yeah, effectively, you can <laughs> you can see that there are definitely elements of him having gone back to the the sort of classic, but with with a lot more depth. I would definitely say you actually get to know and I suppose sympathise with the character. He starts off as this you know utterly useless sort of joke of a man but then you start to see his family life his situation that he's been in why he's in the job he's in to try and um, sort of push forward and make things better for his life and you, you do start to sympathize with this sort of stupid person um but it's it's an hour and a half effectively of slapstick yeah and sort of madcap um 
capers and situations and you know what is possibly going to happen next to the extent that he's pulling chunks out of a two million pound jaguar and stuff like that and it's it's actually it's 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 well done though i've got to say because as i say it's it's ludicrous but the depth that you get in the character is actually interesting and you over the nine episodes you really watch his thought process and you feel for his desperation and you establish that it's it's established that this is an sort of this obsessiveness almost is an element of his character which has got him into difficulty before i don't know if you've seen it steve but uh, just just um in case it was maybe quite similar um did, did you actually see um I think there was two Mr. Bean films. The first one. Yes, there are definitely the was the first one. The one where the, the he goes co- to the, he's an art collector. He goes yeah. to New York and he's looking after this painting that he replaced yeah. with a, a poster, it, effectively. Because what you were saying, Steve, I remind me of the funny thing about that film was how he made one stupid error and it just had so many consequences. It sounds kind of sad. I just found that I was Whistler's mother yes, and that the is, painting and it just everything so revolved. That, that, that is exactly what this is it's one it's one element and then so much utter catastrophe comes from it but there wasn't you didn't get a lot of depth with mr bean you didn't you don't yeah. really know anything about who he is where he's come from i think does they, I mean, does they really speak um, at all no exactly i think the opening sequence of the tv series of mr bean made out as it was an alien or something but that's never ever established i don't think oh but you you kind of it's, it's as though you're getting to know mr bean and obviously he he speaks despite the fact that it's basically him and a bee and a few other minor characters there's a lot of dialogue in this film more than you'd expect but you do kind of feel for his desperation you establish that he's basically the kind of person that just wants to make everything okay he's trying to do the best he can to make everything all right and please everyone he's one of these sort of meek sort of feeble people pleasers wants to make everybody happy but just goes about it so badly that everything goes completely wrong so it's it's silly, but it's it's just it's a fun watch. It's kind of Rowan Atkinson doing what Rowan Atkinson does best. It's his classic nineties um that almost sort of mimey, slapsticky stuff, but with a bit more depth and volume and something interesting. And it's it's fun and it's it's funny, I think. It's I mean the the situations become more and more and more re- they start off relatively believable and then it just gets stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's just a fun watch. I will I will give it that much. It's um you know, it's a shame. I mean I I loved the Mr. Bean as a kid, the TV series, and and there's when you see moments of it, it's still hysterical. Some of the stuff, just how ludicrous it gets, um, it's cartoonish. But what I actually really like more from Rowan Atkinson is the stuff before Mr. Bean. It's Blackadder, that kind of wit, sarcasm, delivery, his comic timing in Blackadder is almost unrivaled, and. It's a shame that Ron Atkinson, I think American audiences prefer the Mr. Bean style of comedy, the sort of slight, like, so and I think he's just made a career out of that kind of simpler slapstick stuff, but it's a different style, but I actually really like when Ron Atkinson, because he clearly can be a very uh, talented comedic actor when it comes to yeah. actual line delivery and not just... I- and I think a lot of that I think a lot of that talent does come through because obviously there's dialogue in this film. There is actual sort of action and bits and pieces. And you you do see that um um sort of more than just the yeah, the slaps um the the physicality of his his idea. Yeah, I mean Ronak yeah. is almost the his British Jim Carrey, if yeah, you like. His yeah. facial mm. stuff is just phenomenal. And you know, any 
sort of hint of any minor emotion he's got a facial expression for it and uh-huh. it's just genius so a, a lot of his his talent does come through on this definitely um, I mean it's perhaps with it being a it's a worldwide Netflix release so he's going for mass market here yeah. it's not a, a BBC4 sort of comedy type thing that would perhaps have a bit more of the sort of British wit and stuff like that it's got yeah. to be mass appeal but he, he does that well um, what would you I suppose you've got to give him that. What would you give him? Uh, I'm, I'm giving this, I think I'm giving it a four out of five. It's stupid, but it's fun. It's yeah. enjoyable. Okay. Man versus B, four out of five. Fran, we come back to you. You wanted to talk a little on Doctor Who. You've watched the finale. It's Jodie Whittaker's uh, final episode. So you want to talk about, is it the season, the finale? What you want to discuss for that? Good well, luck doing this without spoilers. Uh, yeah. Well, that's it. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, I, th- I thought I'd take it as an opportunity to talk about the Jodie Whittaker era. Right. Um, and, you know, there's so much controversy around this. So it'll be interesting. Um, it was a great episode, first that's of good all. Good to hear, yeah. Um, Chris Chibnall was the showrunner for Jodie Whittaker's era. You've had three showrunners for Doctor Who since it came back in 2005. You've, you've had Russell T. Davies is one of the great showrunners and writers of our generation, I believe. You've had um, Stephen Moffat, who did things like Sherlock and other shows. You know, he's 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 good. Very, very good. But I would say, again, not as good as Russell T. Davies. And then there's Chris Chibnall, who wrote a few episodes of previous, who, who was involved in the process, whatever. Big Doctor Who fan, okay? But maybe not, not the best writer, in my view. Now, <clears throat> Basically, what happened was, obviously, Doctor Who came back in 2005 with Christopher Eccleston to massive fanfare. Um, Christopher Eccleston left after one year and David Tennant took over. And during the David Tennant era, it became one of the more popular programs in the UK. And then when Matt Smith came after that, it became one that kind of crossed over to the Atlantic and, and gained a massive following, in fact, worldwide again. And it was kind of going <clears throat> from strength to strength perhaps up to the Peter Capaldi years, which is the actor just before Jodie Whittaker, when it started to sort of stagnate ever so slightly. You know, it happens with TV shows. Doctor Who's audience was sort of going down over time through the Peter Capaldi era. The reason for that, I'm not too sure. I think partly because they cast an older man. I think a lot of the fans that were enjoying the David Tennant and Matt Smith era, you know, there was a lot of people who, who sort of, just liked the fact that there was a younger man in the role, that they could connect with that, whether it was men or women. I think that was part of it. There's quite a lot of fans that would post art of the Doctors and think I think there was a kind of a a lot of people romanticised the Doctor. So anyway, I think they missed the trick with Peter Capaldi. I think they should have just had him as um, is it Malcolm Tucker? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a couple of bits where he, he obviously Doctor Who being a family show that he couldn't swear as much, but there were a couple of points where he channeled a bit of Malcolm Tucker. I, I think he was excellent. I really enjoyed it. Right <clears throat> now, Jodie Whittaker was brought in as the Doctor, and um, Chris Chibnall was the showrunner, and I was quite excited at the time because <clears throat> it wasn't lore breaking for me because. There were other, like, basically the Doctor's a Time Lord and, and there had been examples even in the 60s and 70s Doctor Who episodes of Time Lords regenerating into someone of another gender or another race or whatever. Those things had been done. So I, I was quite excited for it. The problem was that <clears throat> Chris Chibnall, it became apparent, you know, that a lot of the, a lot of the episodes, to be honest, were, were not really the best. Um, the 
at times the plot and certainly the overarching plot for seasons was incomprehensible um laughably bad at points and i feel that that there was a couple of things that left me quite aggrieved about Jodie Whittaker's era. First of all, that an actor as good as Jodie, Whitt- Jodie Whittaker was let down by that. But then she herself annoyed me because when fans complained about the, and Chris Jibble did as well, because when fans complained about the atrocious quality of the scripts, they called them misogynists and said that they just didn't like the fact that she was a woman, which was, in my view, utter bullshit. Okay? Because any true Doctor Who fan, of which Doctor Who fans are quite obsessive people, would know that that was not lore-breaking and did not care. Okay? So they kind of compounded the issue by kind of doubling down and trying to vilify fans who didn't like the quality of what was going on. They then, after that, um, destroyed the lore of Doctor Who completely by introducing a plot element that retconned everything that happened in Doctor Who right back to the very beginning, um, which was kind of a middle finger to to everyone I think it was almost like if we can't have fun in this little playground then we're going to burn it to the ground um and I think the BBC must have realized that things were getting a little bit out of hand uh because Russell T Davies is coming back now to run the show again and I think they're they're going for another not reset they're not resetting the show continuity wise but I think they're going to kind of brush some of the stuff that happened recently lore wise sort of under the rug that being said I do think Chris Chibnall turned out an astonishing final episode, uh, which was a kind of a love letter to Doctor Who and gave Jodie Whittaker some excellent things to do and really showcase her abilities. Um, it's been a complicated era for her, uh, but I, I think I, I walk away from all of this from her era feeling a little bit... You know, it's funny because because that final episode, I began to feel the affection towards her as the Doctor watching her playing the Doctor in that, that final episode and felt a little bit sad that she hadn't been serviced with enough good writing to be able to evoke that feeling previous in her era. And I've got a feeling now that going forward, I'll be able to kind of... I'm kind of glad that this final episode came out and was as good as it was because I'll be able to kind of, in my mind, accept her as part of the the lineup of Doctors now that, that I've, I've kind of, as she was regenerating, I won't say into who or what was going on, because it's always the end of any of they regenerate into someone else, that I felt a little bit, a bit of affection towards her in the role, for sure, and thought, oh, you know, I would quite like to see more of her, you know, I felt that way, I thought I'd really like to see her with Russell T Davies writing it for a season, and, and for her to get what she deserved, because she's a great actress, you know, she's, she is, I mean, she's, um, I, I, um, you know, she's been in a number of different shows. Um, I think she was in, uh, I can't remember if it was Broadchurch or something that she was in. Um, it's been a while since I saw. Yeah. It was another show that I saw. Her. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed her there. That's why I was excited to see her in Doctor Who. Um, yeah. So I've, I mean, I know I've kind of given a quite in-depth explanation there, but it's a, it's a strange thing. It's, it's kind of a. I thought I would be relieved for it to be over. But the final episode showed me that, like, what what it could have been, you know. What would you give this season? Well, I mean, I'm thinking about the era of jo- Jodie's Doctor Who, and I can only, I can't, you know, actually, I I can't even bring myself to give it a rating. Like, I can't. <laughs> I mean, I can't do that because it's just, I just don't. I have strong feelings. I I, I my rating would be mostly, mostly. I, I don't even really know what was going on. A lot of the time, I found it to be incomprehensible. But 
you know, I, I, that last episode, I would have actually, bizarrely enough, I would have given it a five out of five. You know, so it kind of went from from incomprehensible mess to the thing was the last episode had an incomprehensible plot, but it was so entertaining that it, you could look past it. it. You know, it was so there was some really kind of. You could tell that the person writing it, Christian obviously wrote it, but you could tell that like he was expressing his love for the show, you know, and trying his best to give Jodie Whittaker some something to chew on, you know. Something. Is the new Doctor in? Like, uh, is the new Doctor in place? Yeah. Is that the the spoiler as such? Well, I mean, I think it was announced. Like, it, it, yeah, it's on, it uh, shouldn't be a spoiler. Uh, I've seen who it is. Oh, no, I can't we, we know who the next Doctor is, but whether he appeared or not in the last yeah. episodes... <laughs> is that not? Is that not like the thing though? That it's expected to appear. Is it not? I always thought that that, that that's the thing, isn't it? They have a. I have, but it's... have they done something different? Maybe is that? Oh yes, yes, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Very, very strange has happened that again leads me to believe that the BBC executives have sat down and said, "Fix this mess." Mm. Get out the nuclear guns here and get the fans back because we went from eleven million viewers a week to two. So, I, so while you were talking, Fran, not that I wasn't listening intentively, <laughs> but I did Google it, and from what I've seen, even just Googling it, and I don't follow the Doctor Who franchise, but seeing what happened, or seeing who was brought back as such, mm-hmm. uh, you can uh, it, that screams of uh, desperation. It's a massive, we need to yeah, drag people back yeah, again. Like I think that's how it's being like a seen. fan service type thing. Well, partly. I think also it is... Um, I think what they're trying to do is to repair the relationship. There's a lot of people who walked away from watching the show because they raised concerns about the writing and then they were accused of being misogynists. So they just said, and I'm going to say this because it's our podcast, they said, fuck Doctor Who, and they, they decided not to watch it again. And I, think I, mean, be- I mean, I bet you there's probably some people who weren't being whatever, misogynistic and stuff, but some, a lot of the times when creators have to respond it's usually because the people on twitter and all these forums usually are being quite difficult and saying things that are not cool but i, I can't see them just the, do- the doctor who fandom the doctor the- who fandom is very is the doctor who fandom right is and i've been part of the doctor who fandom since i was as i'm able to recall being alive along with my uncle, who was a Doctor Who fan from when he was a small child. I've been to conventions, I've met lots of other fans, I've interacted with fans, that is a thing that I know a lot about, the same with Star Trek and Star Wars and things like that, but Doctor Who fans are a particular breed. They're incredibly loyal fans, okay? So, and Chris Chibnall himself appeared on television in the, I think it was the uh, the late 80s, or or early 90s, I think it might have been the mid to late 80s actually, complaining about the state of Doctor Who at the time and the writing, because Doctor Who has, has fluctuated in terms of quality. So for Chris Chibnall to, and uh, you know, and I think he certainly encouraged Jodie Whittaker to do what he did, there was a period of time 2016, 17 and 18, towards the start of 2019, where it was in vogue to to just deflect criticism, legitimate criticism by saying, well, it's all coming from blah, 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 blah. And in the Doctor Who franchise, I don't feel that was the case. Now, you're right in the sense that you could never say 100% one way, 100% the other, that there wasn't a few folk who were just like, I'm not watching anymore because the Doctor's a a woman, right? But I can guarantee that anyone who enjoyed Doctor Who for most of their life um, and understood the lore of the programme, of which Doctor Who fans are incredibly anal-retentive in terms of knowledge, they would not have been put off by that. The writing was bad. 
Okay. Jodie Whittaker was let down. That's yeah, the general. I, I, that's the general feeling you get when you read posts about it online. Uh, yeah. Okay. As long as that's you know what they're saying and it's not. And yeah. and here's the here's the proof of the pudding. The new doctor. You know. I mean, if you're going to talk about, I mean, what goes hand in hand with misogyny, racism? Well, the new doctor is a black guy. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Oh. Nobody cared when Jodie was brought in. It was only when the show started running that people were like. Uh, uh, this writing isn't very good, you know. Now, I actually watched Jodie's um, run up until the lore-breaking event took place. That was about a, 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 two years into it, Gordon. and that was when I... I think, Gordon, the sound is coming from you, actually, because all the, the noises... But since you've unmuted, I'm hearing a lot of the noise again. Okay. So uh, maybe check if it's a okay. uh, thing. Um, yes, um, certainly. You know, I, can, I clocked out of it two years in, and I think a lot of other people who were kind of kind of held on a bit longer you know so yeah there's 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 the doctor who found them is actually filled with misfits and people who are who were bullied for being nerds and are you know doctor who found them is filled with, with people that have felt marginalized they're the last people on earth who are going to marginalize anyone else okay so right. you know i think that's why the bbc's done what it's done because i think they've realized that they turn there was a lot there's a lot of fans that they, they're kind of trying to sweet talk into coming back to watch again i'll try and give it a rating Oh God! Sounds um, like a, sounds well, it has like to average somewhere. Yeah, it's probably a two, right? Sounds like a two. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give I'll give a rating to Jodie Whittaker's the writing of her era. Right. I'm going to give three uh, ratings. I'm going to I'm going to give her. No, I have to do it this way. I'm going to give a rating to the writing. I regret asking. I'm going to give a rating to Jodie Whittaker's acting, and I'm going to give a rating for the finale. Okay. okay. So I would give it a, a a two, an average two out of five stars for the writing. So that goes to Chris Chibnall. So that's his his score. I'm going to give Jodie a four out of five for acting because I think that she did the best that she could, and the fact that she made that character believable at all is a testament to her as an actress or an actor, whatever you want to say nowadays. I think actors obviously the, the way to say it. Um, and I'd give that finale a five because it showed the best. It, Chris Chibnall, by some miracle, managed to turn out a great episode, and Jodie was given something good to work with. So I want to separate that out as the as the anomaly that it was. The only tragedy here is that they, that he didn't twig that that's what he should have been doing all along, basically. So, so on average, what you're saying is that's three point seven out of five. <laughs> <laughs> round, rounded up. Let's do a round up formula here. So we're saying it's a four out of five. So we got we got there in the end, Steve. Well, that, that's the what, thing. Four right? out of five well, just just to just to kind of to explain where I'm coming from is that I don't want to I didn't want to penalise Jodie Whittaker for the feelings of Chris Chibnall. No, you know well, I, mean? I suppose that's why you're you're. But that's you, yeah, you're you, reviewing. You're, you're, yeah. yeah, you're reviewing the entire thing. You're not just necessarily, you know, you don't just focus on. It sounds as if Jodie Whittaker's had a lot of you know stuff to do with probably like Inkuti, um I forget the Gatwa. Gatwa, yeah. Um, and my God, you talk about the fans. If if he plays the same character like he plays in Sex Education, you are going to get trolls coming out of that for the. the the so-called Doctor Who fans. Well, the the thing is, hilarious. The, I mean, the, the the thing is, I mean, I've seen it in Kuti talking about getting ready for the role as the Doctor, and it's interesting because he said, you know, I mean, each Doctor has their own spin on the personality, but yeah. they're all playing the same character, and G- yeah. Jodie did that as well, very well, you know, and that's one of the magical things about Doctor Who is that, you know, because you can tell it's the same person, even though they look completely different. It's the, they've had the same motivations, the same 
responses to things, you know. Is um, it Doctor Who? Because I I remember watching it. I remember watching the the Chris Eccleston sort of I don't know, what would you call it a reboot? Yeah. Um. Well, kind of. Kind of resurgence could, almost. I, I, yeah. I don't think it was necessarily a reboot. Um, a regen, let's mm-hmm. call it. Um, kind of watched the David Tennant sort of sort of dropped off midway through the David Tennant sort of era. Um, but as you say with the writing, is it is it something because I don't know, like. Are they just running out of ideas? Was this it? Was this series just a we're, we don't we're kind of running out of actual places where the Doctor can go and do? Does that make sense? Um, I think that was that was impacting Capaldi's era hmm. because Stephen Moffat was running that right. So, um, I think it depends on the talent of the writer, really. I mean, I, I think I, I'm glad they brought back Russell T Davies because Russell T Davies is. A very prog- he's a very progressive writer who's able to who but a very skilled writer. So he's able to put together stories that have a moral core or a commentary on today's world and issues that are subtle enough that they don't feel like they're preachy. So he's very, very, very good at that. And an example of a show that he did after Doctor Who called Years and Years, uh, if any of you seen that? Bits of it, but yeah, yeah, I kind of passively watched it. Uh But, I mean, Years and Years is an example of Russell T. Davies at his best, where he's addressing things like um, authoritarianism, immigration, um, environment, you know, um, uh, economic problems, things that face Britain or whatever. But he's doing it in such a way that you can watch the programme and not feel that you yourself are being attacked by it or Mm. called a complete prick, you know which Chris Chibnall is not capable of doing. Now, Stephen Moffat never tried. I think Chibnall's problem was that he was trying to be Russell T. Davies, but does not have the tool set or the capability to do that. Um, So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm really, really, really excited for Davies to be back. And I feel that Davies is... Nothing he makes feels tired. He's always kind of... He's always... He's incrementally exploring fresh ground. He doesn't take make massive leaps ran and at random into new areas. You know, it's it's all very it's very thought out. You know, um. But yeah, I'm excited for it. And 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 I have to say, you know, I I, I do take interest in what Davies does in general, which is why I watched Years and Years when I, when that came out as well. Okay, so a three point seven two five. <laughs> Thank you, Fran. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> Uh, so we have covered the next show, uh, Dammer. Um, uh, I think in the last podcast, it was only Fran, I think, had seen it at that time. Maybe I had watched an episode or something, I can't remember. I've since watched it. I want to just talk a little about that. We obviously, I don't want to take up too much time on it. Um, overall, it is a fantastic show. Uh, an amazing, well, it's astonishing this the story and obviously it's it's just horrendous like and it was a show that i think scott you mentioned it earlier you could watch more episodes i had to stop after an episode i couldn't watch there was only maybe once i watched two episodes back to back but just because i needed that space away from it it was just so horrific Um, that's why i said it was like I didn't actually want to watch yeah, the next yeah. episode, but I wanted to, to watch the next episode. Yeah. As much as that sounds bizarre, because I remember watching, I actually started watching it. We'd done the podcast on the Sunday night, I think. 
and I started watching it on that Sunday night. And obviously, you know, you get work the next day, you're kind of feeling kind of like oh, Sunday night, blah blah blah. I still feel a bit shitty getting to work the next day. Weekend's over. I watched two episodes of that, and I was just the lowest <laughs> for probably uh, been in a while. I was just like, this is so grim. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And the frightening part of it, and Fran um, made reference to the, um, you know, the police are not portrayed in a in a great way at all. Um, you know, not even in a documentary, but j- just for the whole thing. You know, we've got to remember this is real life. I know. And uh, uh, some of the some of their decisions, um, the sort of injustice, you actually get frustrated towards the end when you see the two police officers who let the young boy back up to the the apartment be yeah. awarded um so th- stuff like that it's like it's not wasn't necessarily all about dumb it, it kind of there's obviously the the social commentary about the they don't they don't necessarily like Dahmer I don't think ever admitted to to his attacks being racially motivated I don't think he I, th- I think it was it was suggested to him and he kind of just went well oh, I didn't really yeah I, I think you I know think what it I mean? was it, I think it was just from... he just so happened to be living in that area I, but it was you know. the it was the fact that it was the fact that because it was a, um, a high area, it was a poor area, yeah. run down, um, and yeah, it was the convenience factor. I think, yeah, for him. yeah, and I think most of the phone calls were from um, you know African American neighbors, etc. And it was just the fact that when you see how many times these people complained to the police and the police just swatted them away. Well, that's it. I, I do think that I think the racial aspect and the sexual aspect, like, and he wasn't picking gay people because he hated gay people, and he wasn't picking mm. black people because he knew they wouldn't be, you know, whatever. I think it, or Filipino, like, kind of margin. Basically, yeah, yeah. it was like marginalized members of society, but it it was <clears throat> the police were more racist and uh-huh. bigoted than Dammer was, yeah, 100%. Which, which, yeah. which is itself an insane kind of indictment on the police to think, you know. The dammer made it so easy to be caught. Like, you know, I mean, you couldn't have made it easier if you tried. I mean, the police were in his apartment what three times, and even in one of those times, there was a there was a dead man on the bed or on the floor, and the police are just, and it was just this and it, and maybe not necessarily sort of racial, but there was there was definite homophobic. Like the the, the two yep. cops. The two cops, yeah. The two cops went up, and it was like, "Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a boyfriend type thing." It's, yeah. a, it's a, do you know what I mean? Kind of just alluding to that. It's like, well, we don't get involved in that because that's it's not even it's not even it doesn't cover the law homosexuality. Like we don't get involved in that. So if they're having a spat, they'll deal with it because they're two men in a relationship. And you're just like, wow. Even like it's the way they, they talk to each other, like you need to go and have a shower when you go home, you know, yeah, because you've, you've, you've touched the yeah. guy, like you might get gayness on you, essentially. But they're saying, like, well, I, think, I like... think it was during the AIDS crisis, so mm. you know, there was this idea of you know, they, they were probably wanting to get out of that apartment quickly in case they touched the wrong thing and yeah. picked up AIDS. Like, everybody was kind of a big panic about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the show did a good job of of pivoting into discussing the the injustice of it all uh, yeah, from the police yeah. side, fully agree fully agree you know and, and the, i would say yeah. i would i was just going to say um evan peters is yeah remarkable in this yep. like absolutely remarkable like to the 
demeanor, the persona. I mean, there was there was points of it where there was points of it where I was I was genuinely uncomfortable in my own skin, like sitting watching it because of his performance. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like obviously knowing that this happened, but see the the, the sort of heavy breathing that then he's you know resting his head up, upon the guy that's on the bed and stuff and like whispering and it's it it was it was weird it was like a it was like an uncomfortable not because it was sexual but it was like it was there was something more he was like i don't know if he i don't know is it he kind of alluded to the fact that he just wanted these people here but not but to be in like some kind of zombie state not actually to be a person so that makes i think he kind of alludes to that in the in the show doesn't he uh and yeah. i think it's and i think it's just that i think he's whispering to the guy I'm going to eat your heart and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just like, man, this Bear is... Bear in mind as well, see when that young Filipino bonkers. guy escaped, I think he was Filipino, mm-hmm. he had a hole in the side of his head and already had acid in his brain yeah, and was eating yeah. his brain as he was sitting outside. That's why he couldn't talk, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's, I mean it's, it's unbelievable. Like, it, it's... Again, if, a, if, if, if somebody wrote that and that was like a series of films or like a series that was, that was you know just a writer just creative writing you would go god that's a bit far-fetched that the police would have surely have caught that guy i think american psycho sort of touched upon that in the sense that i mean american psycho obviously there was an element of you know was he was what he was experiencing real but there's this kind of idea of there's the whole thing about what will a, a white person get away with as well there's that sort of thing like the judge saying to dammer um or you know you've got the chance to redeem yourself the police when he was driving mm. a body in the car stopping and when he's, they're saying you've got your whole life ahead of you we'll let you off I know. Yeah. um yeah. you know whereas if you know if it was a black person or a person of a different background then the, the response would have been get out of the car hands on the vehicle whatever and they would have caught him earlier on at that point so uh, dammer by virtue of his appearance um was able to continue yeah. At the earlier stages, and then later, um, the prejudice was flipped around in the sense that the people that were reporting it weren't taken seriously, compounded with the whole homosexual aspect, which disgusted the authorities. So the <laughs> authorities prejudice either positive biases or negative biases uh, ended up being a sort of catalogue of a catalogue of utter failure. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific show from the a show point of view but uh, the the issues it highlights are I mean, really like it's I mean when you look, you look at the history of serial killers right I don't think there's any black serial killers or serial killers of other groups and uh, do you want to know why I think that's the case? Because they were all already arrested, probably. Like, they, you know, before they got a chance to do anything else or before they even got a chance to do what they were doing, they were probably put away for something minor. And, and you know, they, they were already away. They, or or they just, you know... Do you know where I'm coming from here? Yeah. Was, was yeah. Bundy, Bundy was... He was involved with the police before, was he not? Was he kind of in and out? I don't law, think he was... The law world. But yeah, he, commit, he, yeah. he, he committed some smaller crimes and he was whatever but ted bundy was so crazy <laughs> that you know you know there wasn't much ignoring him but i mean i've always quietly thought i mean i don't want to sound like a crazy person here but like when i was younger i used to read quite a lot about serial killers i find them to be quite fascinating so i knew a lot about um 
Dahmer and Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and all those kinds of people. You know, I'd read a lot about them. And I remember thinking, this must have been about maybe 2008, 2009, I had this big book on serial colours and I was reading it and I was thinking, they're all white guys. <laughs> I was like, you know, is there a correlation here that they have managed to, you know, and a lot of serial killers are in the States, aren't they? It's, the United States has a lot of the sort of mass shooting serial killers, all these kinds of things. Like, they're quite common over there. Um, and I was thinking there has to be a correlation with law enforcement, you know, looking at someone and think, you know, they're not even going to suspect this person, are they? You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's great the show's kind of highlighted that that prejudice from that time. And well, it's even today. I think yeah, even I think, now, I think there's elements that it's unfortunate to say um, still exist, as you can see from all the the sort of topical things that have happened over the last few years with yeah the movements we've had. I think it's there's still some of that going on, unfortunately. Right, we have to move on. We've not got much time. The last show that I've been watching is on BBC iPlayer, um, and it's a strange one. Just decided to watch it, being in a historical mood. It's called Russia 1985 to 1999, colon, trauma zone. So this is essentially eight or nine episodes. Catchy. I know. Um, It's about eight or nine episodes. I think it's maybe nine. um, That are told just from clips of all sorts taken during well 1985 to 1989 surprisingly uh, and sort of the break up of the Soviet Union and democracy I think that's actually the the, the the other subtitle that it comes up on on the screen but it's just clips from all sorts of things from state television to people's camcorders um, and it just doesn't have a voiceover it's just narration uh, giving you context to the clip so it gives you an insight into what it was like from all some you know from Gorbachev's time, uh, Yeltsin, and the sort of power struggles and the uh, the back and forth with and uh, the, the creation of the the ol- the oligarchs and things like that, it is really interesting. I did not know a lot about this stuff, and so I it was just a a, a history lesson for me, and very interested uh, in that stuff. So it gives you know it's we're talking it's showing you you know what happened with with the breakup of communism and how it really affected the, the people at the lowest level and things like that well i guess most people in, in russia because it was there was such such deprivation widespread deprivation and yeah it is fascinating some of the the stories and and what it was like for people so if anyone's interested in that i highly recommend it if i was reviewing it the way we do i would give it probably uh four maybe four stars maybe five uh, yeah I'd, I'll go four, but um, you know, it's certainly um, compelling. I really enjoyed watching it. So BBC iPlayer for that, and that concludes our television section. And now we'll go to the look back section where we cover films that have been released prior to this year. And uh, well, we've got a lot of Halloween films being the month of October. Scott, you've delved right into what looks to me like nearly, nearly the entire franchise from the ones you mentioned. So you've got the Rob Zombie sort of series of films you've got the newest trilogy you've watched halloween h2 halloween resurrection i've also watched halloween 2018 myself so i can comment on that but let's uh, scott we'll come to you for general your halloween rewatch of of all the films you've watched um yeah i, I was gonna um i was gonna go back I, th- I think i've seen the first halloween like so many times i could i could probably do like a, a plot for plot summary of that film right now um but from Halloween to the original up to was it six? 
was it the curse yeah, of I, Michael Myers? So I did a feature last year, the binge watch, where I watched the mm. uh, the first five films over the course of one sitting, and um, mm-hmm. that was essentially <laughs> I gave them all a sort of decreasing ratings it was the first one i did give a five the second one was very generous a four um when maybe with hindsight it might have actually been a high three i think but i loved the the feeling the music and stuff like that and then yeah third one three two and then it got to a one by the fifth one i thought that was yeah an important film it was terrible well that's um i think that's the revenge or the return of michael myers or something like that it's bad i think is that not the one with paul rudd Mm. So it's like it's his first film. It's like introduced. That sounds like the sixth one. I haven't seen that. Ah, uh, right. Okay, that's so, bad. Yeah. That's bad. So they they, so just keep getting, to... they just once Carpenter's influence on the sh- on the series to be he was mm. director and writer for the first one. He was a producer on the second one, an executive producer on the third one, and then he left by that point, and it was just Mustafa yeah. Akkad that had taken over. And that's to me is where it really does lose its, um, yeah. it lost the plot really. So yeah. Well, H two, I think H two was Mustafa Akkad's last, or maybe Resurrection was, um, and then his son Malik Akkad took it over. So the Akkads have obviously they're all over this um, sort of entire franchise. But I think John Carpenter for the David Gordon Green one, and uh, Carpenter and uh, Hill, Deborah Hill. So I think they've been more involved in the most recent. Um, but uh, yeah, so I decided to start at Halloween H2. And uh, I, I don't know about if any of you guys saw it. I, I actually quite like Halloween H2. It is a very, very quick film. I did not realise how short this film is. But when I first started watching it, after the title scene, maybe t- about 10, 15 minutes in, I looked down and there's, like, there's about an hour and 20 minutes left. And that obviously taken away the, the end credits as well. It's such a fast film. It just gets you from A to B so quick. Um, I think the the disappointing part of it is there's about 45 minutes and in, in within the, the entire film where literally nothing happens. And then in the last 15 minutes of the film, everything happens. Um, Steve, you mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis's sort of arc in a lot of these films. And kind of Sarah Connor almost. Mm. Um, she she kind of gets that in Halloween H two O. There's a moment in Halloween H two O that I really like, and it's the fact that Michael Myers obviously chasing her and the her son Josh Hartnett's her son in this. Um, they're still doing the the she is the sister of Michael Myers. Um, and but there's a moment in it where you think, oh, she's she's going to get away, she's going to get the car, she's going to drive away, but she actually puts her son and Michelle Williams in the car and says, no, go. And she gets an axe and then she just starts walking up and then she screams like Michael. She's actually going to hunt Michael. And I thought for the first time in the series, that was really, really good to watch. It kind of gives you, I remember watching it recently and I actually got like goosebumps. Like when she screams his name, you get the kind of, it's not the standard Halloween theme in H2O. It's more of a kind of like orchestral, sort of romantic kind of more theme. And then that kicks in and then she basically goes hunting for Michael and then there's the um, there's the sort of final battle where, obviously, I kind of ruined the film earlier on. There is a moment at the end of that film where it genuinely leaves you going, wow, I cannot believe that just happened. And you think, you think... 
how can he come back from that? Unfortunately, Halloween Resurrection happened. Mm. And they basically just... I mean... We can go into spoilers with this, can't we? Uh, I guess so. Uh, how do people feel about spoilers for this stuff? I mean, I'm going to guess he's resurrected. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're basically at the end of H2O. Jamie Lee Curtis chops Michael Myers' head off with an axe, right? And you think, there's no gimmicks here. He's not got out of that. He has literally lost his head, right? In Halloween Resurrection, they bring him back with the most lazy, implausible way where basically in a scene, he, a, a police detective, Michael Myers, grabbed him, crushed his larynx so the guy couldn't speak. Myers dressed him in the boiler suit and the mask. Then from that section on in the <laughs> In that section on in the H2O film, it was then the police officer. So it was the police uh, officer who Jamie Lee Curtis chopped his head off. And I'm just, you're thinking, right, to see the entire time I've watched Michael Myers on screen, when has Michael Myers ever used strategic planning? Mm. When has he ever, mm, I'm now going to be a shite bag here and I'm going to crush this guy's larynx so he can't talk and dress him up as me so he gets his head chopped off and I don't. That's the most ridiculous is thing ever. Shocking. It is horrible. And then unfortunately, going into Halloween Resurrection, they basically the the sort of James Cameron esque female story arc that Jamie Lee Curtis gets in H2O. No, we're not interested in that. She basically dies straight at the start of Halloween Resurrection. Just you're dead. You're dead, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's it. And unfortunately what we get from there is okay. Michael Myers, and what I can only describe is it's Big Brother, right? So basically, it's like a they've got the hidden cameras in the Michael Myers house. There's Buster Rhymes, there's Tyra Banks, there's Buster Rhymes using karate on Michael Myers, mm. and that's where the line is trick or treat, motherfucker. And I think he also says Michael Myers has been set on fire, and he says chicken fried, motherfucker. And it's just the the writing, the acting, everything is horrendous in this film yeah utterly horrendous yeah i i planned at some point to finish the halloween films do the binge watch style um mm -hmm. but the uh the thought of sitting through from starting off at the curse which i'm gonna guess is gonna be in the one to two star range probably not that i try to have preconceptions going in i try with an open mind but even the names i did make that comment and the names of those films are starting to irritate me uh, mm. just the sort of just you know, the revenge, the, the return, uh -huh. curse. They're yeah. so lame and cheesy about them. But yeah, I may come back to that. It's if I find a Saturday or Sunday when I have the time and think, right, I'm going to waste the day watching yeah. six Halloween films. But anyways, um, what would you have given Halloween H2O if you were rating that? Um, so Halloween H2O was actually probably like growing up was the first Halloween film that I ever. I ever followed in terms of like cinematic release and hype for so it, does that make sense mm -hmm. so it's like it, it it's it's i kind of hold something close to it and i still really enjoy it uh, i don't think i could give it a four mm -hmm. like it would be a, it would be a strong three i think it would be a strong three maybe a wee bit kind of sentimental but halloween resurrection is a one out of five stars yeah and that's been really generous to Buster Rhymes. Yeah, I have seen H2O. It was part, you know, once at a friend's house when we were watching scary films like Scream and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And it was part of that era, wasn't it? The late 90s. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, it's not one I have fond memories of as such. The only thing I do remember actually was a guy gets an ice skate through his face. Um, it's a uh, jo- uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt. Oh, is it? Right, okay. There you That's go. One of his first acting roles. Nice, nice. Good way to start. So, are you you want to? There's more other Halloween films you've you've, you've watched the, the the Rob Zombie trilogy. You want to very so there, briefly just discuss I'll them? Quick of it. Yeah. So the Rob Zombie one's actually quite interesting. And again, we spoke about it earlier about about series of films or franchises been like retconned and stuff. This was essentially a remake of the first um Halloween film, um, and it's a it was actually it's interesting we were talking obviously about Dharma and the whole kind of you know is it was it nature was it nurture in the entire Halloween franchise we've never really explored what makes Michael Myers Michael Myers and I think that's something that Rob Zombie tried to tackle in the first film it was a lot more focused on the young Michael what was it that made this young boy just turn crazy um, and it was just it's basically people picking on him just not treating them nice but the people who did treat him nice or the innocent people in his life was the young baby which is obviously Laurie Strode she, she obviously couldn't have treated him any worse or you know shouted at him or hit him or bullied him or whatever so I think that that sort of aspect was interesting um he obviously just turns into a mindless killer anyway and shows absolutely no emotion um but no, it was really good. It was really good. Different take on Myers as well. He's played by Tyler Main, who's like six foot seven. So that imposing sort of unstoppable force is more visual as opposed to the shape just kind of appearing or coming in and out and being like sort of like a, a sort of sl- a slimmer more uh, man or a smaller man type thing. Um, the second uh, Rob Zombie's uh, this the Halloween two is just off the charts bizarre it's just i've no idea what's going on i still don't know what's going on i think they're trying to i think they were trying to make it so Laurie Strode essentially takes on his psyche of of being a serial killer they're, they're trying to kind of allude to like a psychological connection between them um but it's all very messy um and it's i probably wouldn't recommend it but i think on the two of them i'd probably actually give halloween Rob Zombie's Halloween a four, and the second one a two. So is it only two he did? For some reason, I called it a trilogy. I thought there was a trilogy he did. Was it just two? No, it was just 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 one and two. Okay, and the more recent films, obviously, you've just discussed Halloween Ends. I've seen Halloween twenty eighteen, um, and I think it's overall decent, but also at the same time lacking kind of originality because it is trying to be that first film again but in the end like the, the, I think the new thing it's trying to do is reinvent Laurie Strode again yeah. to be that sort of more action oriented kind of the grizzled vet type character she's tried to get her daughter into learning uh, to, to fight and tactical guns and all this kind of stuff and there's some cool things comes from that maybe towards the end but um so that's maybe the thing I liked about it, but at the same time, I didn't really feel that strongly about maybe all the other characters in the film, and just becomes a slasher at points, and I guess that's what people want from these films, but I also think it lacks any real substance at those bits. And it's just, it's just, yeah, it's okay. I'd give it three stars that Halloween 2018. See, I think I would probably give it a four, and I would probably give it a four because I don't, I don't, I think I've got to rank it as a standalone film, I, I, your points are valid. Like it, 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 
it does become some of the kills. It's almost like it's it's like fan service to the Michael Myers diehards who want to see the kills. They want to see you know new ways that he can kill people and inventive ways he can kill people. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think some of that is a wee bit formulate. But I think in terms of where the franchise was, for example, Rob Zombie's Halloween was good. The second Halloween was piss poor, like just bonkers. So in terms of rebooting the franchise from then, because um, I think that was 2009. So from 2009 to 2018, we hadn't seen a, a you know a Michael Myers film. So I think for me and in the franchise. I actually think it's I actually think it's up there with one of the strongest. I mean, since, I, I think the first. within the franchise it is, but I probably I mean I've only seen it that those first five plus H two and now that um, so there's a lot I still haven't seen because it's got so many bloody films. But yeah. they they're just they aren't I don't know I don't it's not a franchise I get real close affection for it, I must say like it is one classic at the very beginning. I think as a as a cinema classic that first one dated but like it's still a classic and yeah to me it's diminishing returns with little bumps here and there where it's they've got something right and I think that's one of them that is one of the better ones and I can see why you give it a four like I'm not it's it's a very high three I would give it yeah I think it's I think it's it's very similar to a lot of um first films that were done you know seventies eighties. Now you talk about other kind of other sort of, you know, the Predator, for example. So amazing first instalment, brilliant concept as an alien or a character, poor poor franchise followed. Mm-hmm. I think what Halloween done, probably Rob Zombies, but I think what the twenty eighteen one done is kind of it it rejuvenated Michael Myers as much as it did Laurie Strode. If that makes sense, like it, it made Michael Myers relevant again for me, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's why I, I quite enjoyed it. Maybe Halloween's the same, but Predator is one of these films. It's like they shouldn't have even thought about making a sequel for that. I can understand why they did making the choices of um, making the choices that they did in Predator Two. Um, I suppose that's that's questionable as well with the you know the the, the street wars and the Jamaican voodoo gang and. You know, there's some when you actually, if you could delve into Predator Two, it's it's random. Okay, so we'll move on then from the Halloween series of films, and we will look at Steve. You've watched Final Destination Four. We'll keep the horror theme. Around. Yes, I have. I mean, horror probably in the loosest possible term. But there's been <laughs> there's obviously a lot of chat about a new Final Destination film, which is apparently on the way. Uh, HBO, I think, are looking into that. Um, and it was it was a series I loved when I was maybe 13, 14. So I thought this week I'm going to pick up where I left off and go for Final Destination Four. Um, so this one this one is the Final Destination. It's called. So obviously it's preceded by five and six. I mean, obviously everyone knows the uh, the premise of these sort of films. But Final Destination One, for example, it's a young guy has a premonition of a big accident. Uh, he panics. A group of people escape before the accident actually happens. And then death chases them down one by one, trying, usually successfully, with a lot of gore and jump scares, to kill them. Final Destination 2, young woman has a premonition of a big accident, uh, panics, a group of people escape. You can see where this is going. Every single film is exactly the same. Literally, the only 
difference is the accident. Final Destination 1 was a plane crash, the second one was a car crash, the third one was a roller coaster, and so we've got to see it to um, number four. And I uh, naively thought, oh, maybe they've shaken up slightly. No, they've not. It's identical, except this time it's a young man who has a premonition of a big accident while he's at one of these sort of NASCAR type, um, sorry, NASCAR type speedway races. Same thing happens. He has a premonition. He panics. A load of people escape. The big accident happens. And the film basically follows these people who have escaped the accident. These people should, in theory, have died. Uh, they escaped because of the premonition, and as a result, they're dying in crazy and wonderful ways one by one. <clears throat> and, I mean, let's get down to it. These films are crap, aren't they? <laughs> they're, they're fun. They're, I mean, they're enjoyable. The... I think I remember. I just I just remember enjoying them so much. Particularly, I mean, the first one. In fairness, I think we can say was relatively. That was quite a novel idea. I liked the first one exactly as a concept. Mm. I think it was brilliant. But the fact that they've re- replicated it pretty much point for point. There's no shake up in them whatsoever. To the extent that you know, going into the film, effectively what's going to happen. You're watching it for. I suppose what you're doing is you're watching it for how it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that lots of people are going to die. You're watching it for the hilarious ways in which they die. Right. The, the jump scares, the jump yeah. kills, the um, the gore in particular. But in terms of the films themselves, the writing, for example, is generally atrocious, particularly in this one. I don't know if it was different writers or whatever. I don't remember it being that bad. The first one, definitely two, were pretty good. I definitely remember. But, I mean, the, the writing for four, I can tell you, is pretty pretty poor the characters just none of them are likable even the sort of the main the main sort of gang there's two or three of them that are a bit kind of weak and then you've got the one stereotypical you know that late 90s early noughties jock type character the american pie type oh, guy yeah, yeah. who's just played so badly nothing he says it just it's not convincing at all he's trying far too hard to be the sort of stereotypical american cool guy and just doesn't pull it off right i don't think it's interesting watching a film with genuine racist characters you don't hear a lot of particularly nowadays actual racist language coming out of the mouths of white people but this has a a proper racist racist character who's just i mean he's a nasty piece of work and as you expect gets killed off but you you it does make you sit back and go whoa you wouldn't get language like that in a film today so that that felt kind of shocking this is it's 2009 it's quite late on it's not all that early um so, I mean, I suppose the only plus is that the the ridiculousness of it makes it... Excuse me, I'm just going to clear my throat. Sorry, I am struggling today. <laughs> um, yeah, the, it, it, the, the ludicrousness of the situations does make it funny. I suppose it's a horror. You've got the, the gore and the jump scares, but it's you watch it for the, the humour. You know, you've got... You have situations where you've got a mechanic, for example, who's impaled, and I mean properly impaled on a fence. He's you know, splat against it, his body's cut up into 20-odd different bits, and all his mates come running out of the garage going, hey, man, are you okay? No! He's in bits! <laughs> of course he's not okay. Why are you asking him that? It's just sort of ridiculousness like that. And then I think they, they, throw, they start throwing stuff in because they it almost becomes a parody of itself. They know that the people, I think the people who make the film know that the people who are watching it are watching it for the ridiculousness. So you've got the, you walk, some, a character walks into the room and there's a big pile of sort of vats, sort of big um, barrels, if you like, of what's obviously flammable material. And their labels, <laughs> the labels on them are spontaneously combustible. Not just combustible, 
spontaneously combust. Why? Who's oh, making that's amazing mass producing a material that that could spontaneously produce? This is on a building site, by the way. Um, and you're watching going. I can see what they've done. There. It's 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 almost comic book. Yeah. Um, ridiculousness, but it's I mean it's it's crap funny. And what I don't understand is I don't think anyone's I don't think anyone was calling out for another Final Destination film. I don't quite know what's going on with it because when you look up what's actually you know when the film's going to be released, for example, there is no answer. It kind of says it's due to be released in an as yet unspecified year. So whether they've got partway through and given up, or they're struggling with it, or there just isn't any demand for it, I don't know. But there is allegedly one on the way. But uh, this one, as I say, it's called The Final Destination. It's then got another two sequels. <laughs> going to give this, I think at best it's going to be a two out of five. Yeah. It's, it's, it's trash, it's funny, but it's it's it's, it's pretty terrible. As um, it's, it's not what it is. I'm kind of let it down because it's not what I remember it being. I loved, the first two were great. I was 13, 14, 15, loved them. They've aged badly, let's just put it that way. And I don't hold out a great deal of hope for the, the new one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what are they going to call the new one? The final, final destination? Yeah. Final. It's really the end this time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like you could, I mean, I would have been more believing it if it was called like, you know, Dumbrecht, Cardonald. And then finally you got like Glasgow Central on the line. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it needs to be more, there needs to be, yeah, yeah, the titles are problematic. I was thinking that as well with Halloween, the final, what was it called? Halloween, the, the final. Halloween ends. Halloween ends again. Halloween ends once more. I mean, the something of Michael Myers. Oh, they're the ones that really are. Oh, I'm not a fan of them. Mm. Uh, Final okay. Destination, though, I remember, was it the first one that came, was it the first one where the, the, the plane mm-hmm. thing happened? Yes, that's right, I remember right, yeah. that being incredibly gruesome. Like, like horrifying, like well, the flames sort of flying through yeah. and all that. Oh, it's, it's gruesome. It's, as a, as a film, I think all the films are the, what gets, I think their audience is the gore factor. Mm. It's incredible, the deaths are incredibly gory. You see, you know, blood guts, the lot. I don't quite know how shocking it is these days, but particularly back then, I remember going, "Whoa, that's you, you just don't see that in any. You don't see that level of destruction of a human I, on any other scale." I think yeah. I've only seen the first one, and uh-huh. I vaguely remember a scene when I think is it a woman is cooking, and we know that she's you know death is coming to her, that type of thing. But it's that kind of way where it sort of builds up. It's like the camera's panning over, maybe like things in the kitchen that could go wrong. Like mm-hmm. you're trying to kind of the, the the joy in the scene is trying to work out, okay, what is the thing that's going to happen? What is it going to be? And it's like yeah. something like electrical that maybe like sparks something, and then knives I think flew out and all this like it's got her. It was just absolutely ridiculous. The build up to it is nonsense. It was it was kind of yeah. that's the fun of those films, though, isn't it? it? The tension. It's almost like roller coaster tension. You're just getting up there and up there and up there and waiting for the drop yeah okay all right so uh two star review for the final destination sort of um but uh yeah so uh, nearly nearly a guilty pleasure steve but i sense the disappointment to get to end up getting the two what we do in the shadows what was your thoughts on this one as well steve uh this i definitely enjoyed a lot more uh, so this is this is on uh, Amazon Prime. It's from 2014. Uh, written, directed, and starring Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords and uh, Taika Waititi, who we all know from 
a huge number of great films. And it's a Spinal Tap kind of mockumentary almost uh, about uh, a group of vampires who flat share in an apartment in Wellington in New Zealand. That is the best uh, concept. Yeah, I, I love ever. I love this by the way. It's as a concept it's it's absolutely it's genius. And it's kind of following this group around in the build up to their annual undead masquerade ball. And it just it's just it's if you've seen, you know, Spinal Tap or The Office, either of them, you get the idea of what it's like. It's sort of awkward people. You 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 follow this group of vampires, meeting new people, making friends, going to clubs, navigating lives, navigating werewolves, all that kind of stuff. And it's it's actually it just it's brilliant. It's the the awkwardness of the characters is perfect. It's what you want from that kind of documentary style comedy. You see it in actual documentaries just as much as you do the the comedies that take the piss out of them. It's what you want is the awkwardness of the people on camera. They're not quite at ease with yeah. being on camera. They're awkwardly smiling and they're not quite sure how to talk or react, but then you get to know them. So it's it's great and it's it's, it's well scripted. There's some great lines and some genuinely good jokes. And some of the concepts are great. Um, it's, I don't think, I mean, if the concept, if you like the concept, I'd probably recommend the TV reboot, 2019 reboots, um, written um, as well by Jermaine Clement, but um, I actually found that more laugh out loud funny. Oh, right. Possibly because okay. of the cast. So it's it's exactly the same uh, writing team, but it's set in New York, but with an entirely British cast. So it's Matt Berry, and every time Matt Berry opens his mouth at anything, I laugh. There's just something about him. And then you've got um, Kevin Novak from Phone Jacker and Four Lions, uh, Natasha Dimitru, who's in a lot of stuff today. She's brilliant. Um, and that, the TV series, I think it was BBC, but the TV series is also available on Prime, I believe. Okay. It's genuinely laugh out loud funny, and it's that same concept of watching a group of vampires but kind of navigating normal life <laughs> yeah um and it's it's properly hilarious um but this this the the film the 2014 film the original i think i'm giving it a four actually it was it was really enjoyable it's that kind of dry awkward funny yeah but it, it works really really well excellent i need to watch this i have been recommended this a fair few times and empire spoke very highly of it back when it came out and i still haven't watched it for some reason um so i really need to check this one out so glad to hear it's uh getting a good review here um the italian job gordon you've watched that this is the original one with michael kane yeah yeah 1969 i'm glad steve got to talk about there because i thought how are we going to go from the halloween films and jeffrey Dahmer to the italian job i was kind of thinking about that so no um yeah and i have seen the 2003 film with Shirley's theron and mark Wahlberg. yeah um decent uh but yeah th- this is I think this was quite a pioneering film at the time in terms of heist. Um, came across quite big budget, comedic, um, very theatrical at times. Probably um, one of Michael Caine's certainly most famous roles. Um, great score um, by Quincy Jones. Um, but I suppose, well, the premise is probably quite well known. Um, uh, a group of, I guess... Uh, <laughs> ex-cons released from prison michael michael kane's just been released from prison thanks charlie croker his character they they um basically rob a security van in venice under the cover of a football match that's on um and in a group of i think four minis and that was why that's one of the 
like I said, I, iconic. Um, that's one of the most iconic things about it. It's the these different coloured minis driving in really unusual settings through like through underpasses that cars aren't supposed to get through. Um, down steps through like an abbey, uh, uh, like all all through a like a, <laughs> a river. <laughs> partly, um, it's just. It's the highly implausible things in it that are just so much fun. Some of the cinematography I'm talking about, like the escape from yeah. the the robbery in Venice. Um, has anyone else seen? I know you've not seen it, Steve. Has anyone else? I've not actually. No, it's a classic though. Apparently, all I know from yeah. it is you're only meant to blow the bloody dolls off. Yeah, it's um, and I've, I never. I suppose I'm kind of continuing the Michael Caine theme as well. Not not like deliberately it just it just happened to be on sky cinema but um one thing that was notable actually was douglas slocum was the the principal photographer any does he bring any bells for anyone in this podcast actually no indiana jones oh uh i think quite a few other films of that era um i think he might have had a bit of an association with spielberg but um yeah, I'm surprised to see his name come up, and that's one thing the film did very well. Some just very clever angles, zooms, um, real close-ups, like of the sort of escape bus, um, which the minis somehow managed to get into. All th- well, all three of them, not four. Um, like those, it's like close-up shots from the wheels of the bus and from the wheels of cars or wing mirrors and stuff. Really, like dynamic camera work for the time and. Like, like I said, it's just one of the for stunt work at it, and the you know it looks like it's absolutely incredible driving stunts, really implausible settings. You know, cars that you know you they shouldn't be there. It's like even driving up, they somehow managed to get onto the roof of a football stadium. Um, I, it was actually I think it was Turin was the setting. I might have said Venice or Rome. It was Turin, as far as I remember. But um, it's like. A car shouldn't be there. It's like that was so ahead of its time. We'd seen, we were starting to see films in the 60s with car chases, but we'd never seen anything like it at this point. So it's, I mean, it scores quite highly for me. Um, my score is a four. Um, I like the theatrical side of it. Um, I suppose the, the perhaps the only other real big notable star was Noel Coward who I, I love the fact that he's actually Charlie Croker's boss but he's controlling everything from a prison and even like a scene of him you, you need to see it like there's a particular scene of like him going to the toilet and then coming out of the toilet and it's just it's like it's, it's a very patriotic film as well it's it's very British which is is another thing I really like about it nice all right I would say oh I would say also um, it's, and again, we don't spoil films, even though this is an older one. Um, is I like um, the, I'm trying to find a way to put this without spoiling it, but um, like the ending final scene is very impressive. And just the, 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 the choice made um, of how to end a film is like, if you ever want, if you're ever thinking, how do you end a film differently? Um, like this is a a good example of that. Hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I need to watch it. It is one of the, touted as one of the all-time film classics. And so, yeah, need to add that to the list as well, the ever-growing list. Uh, so uh, four stars for your rewatch of The Italian Job. We'll stay with you, Gordon. Orange County as well. Yeah, this was quite a random one. And I actually, I heard about this film through music because it was an MTV production, 2002, when punk rock was quite a big thing at that time um and i suppose rock music in general and this film had quite a big um sort of rock orientated soundtrack um like i kind of knew of it through the the songs that the offspring and foo fighters had done for it and i just was i thought i got to see this um the thing that surprised me actually was that the, the actor who i hadn't heard of was colin hanks tom hanks's son what else has he been in? Uh, Band of Brothers he was in. Uh, I think he was in Dexter, possibly. I might be getting that mixed up. Yeah, I, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised, not just by the film, but by him. I, I thought like he quite like his dad, but he like, uh, for the sort of dork, he was the principal character, like the sort of dorky teen. Um, I thought he, he was great like, in various comic sequences. So Colin Hanks is supported by Jack Black. It must have been one of his first film roles. Harold Ramis makes a really great um, appearance later on in the film. Um, and now, I think it's Kathleen O'Hara. Um, that She was basically the mother in Home Alone, I think. I'm just uh, checking. Catherine Ka- O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, I, I like, she's I like actually... Catherine O'Hara. She's in Beetle- Beetlejuice as well. She's great in that. Ah, right. Yeah, because I, I thought she was really good in this. But um, And it's funny because when you think about it, these um teen comedies so it's essentially like a, a teen comedy if you like of an era where there was a lot of these films coming out this was in the right in the height of american pie for example you'd like road trip and then you'd like scary movie and things like that and you had a few years later you were starting to get things like van wilder all kinds of stuff um i think this film i don't watch a lot of films like this and it's been a long time since i i watched any kind of dorky american comedy but it just i don't know if it was partly because of when i watched it because i felt i needed a film like this again but i really enjoyed it i think as well like you compare it to the likes of the american pie films and this film it, it was very simple and very original um, and it's like toilet humor is not required like it does comedy in so many other different ways jack black's a star in it he's just like this um lazy jobless guy the, the main plot is like colin hanks um he stays with like a, an alcoholic mother and uh a waster of a brother who just sits getting stoned every day and but he wants to really like achieve academically and he wants to get into a university i'm just uh recapping on it right now actually uh so the, the whole plot is around like him chasing a place at Stanford University. So it's such a simple thing. And one of the great things about the film is it's the whole timeline is it's essentially um, one day into the next. It's one of these films you don't get too many of them. But there's something there's something I find very nice and interesting. But it's just it's a pleasant sort of feel good film. Um, I loved seeing Harold Ramis in it uh, in a latter day role. Um, yeah, it's, I, I suppose this is a film that flew under the radar, really, and it makes an everyday, quite basic scenario seem quite interesting. It's, um, yeah, I would actually really recommend it. It's a four out of five. Four out of five. 
Excellent. So another four out of five for Orange County. And the last film we have is a film I have seen, uh, Muriel's Wedding. Has anyone seen Muriel's Wedding? Nope. Nope, nope. I don't think I, I think have, years yeah. ago, I can't really remember about it, though. Uh, was Ewan McGregor in it? No, no, I don't know what. I don't know what I'm thinking of. <laughs> uh, it's Tony Collette in one of her first roles, if not her first role, I think. First major film role, anyway. She plays Muriel. It's an Australian comedy drama, um, very 90s. In fact, when was it released? It was uh, 1994. So it's very pacey which i really love about it this film moves like like lightning um and there's no wasted space and time in fact almost its detriment is a plot point that actually you're like how what happened how did that happen why has that person changed their mind it, there's no t- time given to it you feel it's a lot of deleted cuts but overall it's a funny film uh, it's essentially muriel is kind of picked upon by our well so-called friends these kind of queen bee types uh you know the turf the, the the girls that were the most popular in school she's not one of them and she's a wee bit like she, tony collette actually put on weight for the role she actually put on like is it free stone or something like that so she's um you know she's she they call her fat and all this kind of stuff and essentially she's she's what the you know she's unhappy she's trying to fit in and she ends up going on a holiday um herself to try and actually they I think the the friends are on holiday, she tries to meet up with them, they totally abandon her and all this kind of stuff, and they're really obnoxious to her. You feel so bad. It's just it's it's terrible. She meets a new friend and then becomes she kind of creates her a new character for herself. Like she re, kind of reinvents herself and it her dream is just to get married. She just wants to get married. She wants she considers that as success and that will get everyone to to like her and she wants those friends back and all this kind of stuff. And so that the film kind of goes through lots of twists and turns to to get to uh a wedding when she meets someone. Um I won't you know I won't go into it. It's still it's still fun to watch. The the sort of the family her dad is a horrendous character in it. He essentially has been having an affair and he's you know there's uh, muriel's got all these like siblings and he just talks he tells them how much of a waste they are and all this kind of stuff like but somehow you're laughing at the end in the film that the way there's there's some comedy and i don't know how to describe it but the, the actual film is is hilarious even though a lot of the stuff i've said doesn't sound very funny at all but yeah it's it's a really fun pacey film i enjoyed it uh i would give it four out of five um maybe because of that there's a decision that someone makes in the film that comes out of nowhere and kind of but the film wraps up because of it but it's like um you know i, I feel like there's a deleted scene there to explain what's the change of heart here but there's a it's it's really really funny i enjoyed it and very 90s and look style everything about it and a quite enjoyed that so for for muriel's wedding and that concludes our films tv shows and i wasn't sure if you want to do this but maybe we i just we didn't actually discuss the death of robbie coltrane i wonder if you just want to spend a very brief moment talking about robbie coltrane it sort of came out from nowhere didn't it like i think he's quite a private man wasn't he so i don't think i mean unless i'm completely under a rock i don't think there was any real knowledge that he was unwell was there no it did, this pretty much came out of nowhere he hadn't been seen for a few years yeah but there wasn't much in the way of speculation yeah 
Well, I, from Robbie Train, obviously, that's the Golden Eye connection. It was my first sort of exposure to seeing him as Valentin Zakowski. Uh, and I loved him in that. We've talked about it, you know, to death on the Bond podcast. We don't have to, you know, talk a lot about that. But his two Bond roles, I mean, obviously, the second one, maybe not quite as good as the first one. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed him in that. He's obviously probably most famous now for Hagrid in the Harry Potter films. So a whole generation of fans of Robbie Coltrane know him as that. Of course, Cracker from from his early days. Gordon, I know you're a fan of that, aren't you? You've, you've seen that? Yeah, that was actually one of the first things I saw him in. And that it really stuck out to me. He's like, um, I need to see it again because I was far too young at the time to be seeing that. But it was... Yeah, just uh, excellent acting. He was he was a great. Um, it'd be all too easy to think of a lot. I mean, obviously, you've touched upon there, Steve. A couple of big roles of his that were they did have comedic elements. Even in Goldeneye, there was a, there was a touch of comedy oh, there. Um, but definitely. I think a lot of people probably forget just what a skillful actor he was, and he was a man who cared a lot about Scotland, who cared a lot about um, like Scottish heritage, natural history and um you know like um but he, he for, yeah i'll not go into it but like i did uh he cared a lot about like his sort of background and that and people who came from his sort of background things like that um very skillful actor um obviously very versatile actor as well and um like yeah you said harry potter films well like just one of the main stars of that and um, one of the and he's like one of the like best high profile actors you can really think of from Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh a definitely a, a national treasure from for Scotland. Uh, and and obviously with his announcement of well the announcement of his death, the clips that are getting shown from things like Blackadder is one of my favourites when he um Dr. Johnson, you know, the famous clip where he's um Blackadder's making up words because he's obviously written the dictionary and uh, Blackadder's making up all sorts of funny words to confuse him as to why they're not in his dictionary. It is brilliant uh, British wit and his delivery is is incredible. Very A very skilled actor. Sadly passed away the aged 72 uh, on the 14th of October this month. So it was a sad announcement when that came out. Um, yeah. But We'll we'll end the podcast now and, well, we'll decide what we're doing, potential project, all that kind of stuff. And you can catch all our other stuff on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. There's also our reviews on the website, features, news stories, things like that. Um, And yeah, that's that's Capiche, that's K-P-E-S-H dot online. Go and check it out, guys. It'd be great. And also, if there's any feedback you want to give, that'd be fantastic. Likes, shares, all that stuff would be much appreciated. And thanks, guys, for joining me. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>